0: To crashing the War Party. My name is Kelly Blejos, and I'm joined as always by my co-captain Daniel Larison, as we navigate the shoals of the U.S. foreign policy establishment, particularly the failed wars of the last 20 years. Today we're talking to ex-State Department Foreign Service Officer Peter Van Buren, who wrote a whole book about our failed invasion and reconstruction efforts in Iraq. But right now, let's talk about uh, some of the breaking news in Eastern Europe. Um, the uh, the NATO Secretary General uh, Stoltenberg has come out and warned Russia uh, about its buildup of troops on the Ukrainian border. He said, and this is Jen Stoltenberg, said, a large and unusual buildup of Russian forces had been spotted on the border in recent weeks. I've read somewhere that they are putting that number up to 100,000 troops at this point, but it's not verified. He spoke amid speculation that Russia could be planning to invade Ukraine. Moscow has dismissed such fears as alarmist and complained of increasing NATO activities in the Black Sea, to which NATO uh, had responded in one paper saying that those activities of which they're pretty huge, and we've talked about them and crashing the war party in the past, are merely defensive actions and exercises. Speaking after talks with Ukraine's foreign minister in Brussels, Mr. Stoltenberg said the important thing was to stop tensions from spiraling out of control. He warned Russia against taking any aggressive actions. So this comes amid other news that we've seen this week on the building migration uh, crisis at the Polish border, which is the result of Belarus giving all sorts of uh, visas and encouraging migrants from the Middle East to travel to Belarus and after which they are pushed towards the uh, Polish border as a sort of retribution, I, I understand, for EU sanctions on Belarus. Uh, in the earlier part of the year. So really it's weaponizing migrants. But, you know, so you have these migrant, this migrant crisis on the border with Poland and Poland has made some noise about bringing NATO or at least asking NATO uh, to talk about perhaps uh, intervening. I don't know what that would look like. Uh, Moscow obviously is defending Belarus uh, as UA, the EU slaps even more sanctions on Belarus uh, and then you have this other uh, brewing uh, crisis with uh, Ukraine and Russia so Dan are, are we seeing a real buildup towards war here or am I am I misreading the tea leaves uh,
1: well I I don't think it's a buildup towards war uh, for well for a couple of reasons one I don't see what the Russians would hope to gain from it and I don't see what would actually be driving them to take such drastic action. If Ukraine were taking steps uh, towards NATO membership or something like that, then I might see uh, a line having been crossed where Moscow thinks they have to to move. Uh, but that that hasn't happened. Uh, there, there has been the, the standard boilerplate saying, yes, eventually they will become members of the alliance. But that's been the standard line coming from the US and NATO for over... 13 years now. So n- nothing has really changed that would suddenly provoke uh, a more aggressive Russian action. Uh, and, and we also, we heard a lot of this same talk earlier in the year uh, when the Russians were conducting military exercises uh, in the same vicinity, uh, and then they dispersed those forces afterwards, and the, all of the, the panic about impending Russian invasion proved to be uh, misguided uh, or unfounded. And I, and I think the same thing is happening here, uh, to to the extent that there has been a buildup and, and it's unclear how how many troops have actually been added to the uh, the Ukrainian border uh, relative to what's normally there. Uh, I, I think we could see this as simply as a sort of tit for tat response to uh, NATO military exercises, the the ones that you mentioned, and uh, because. The, the line coming from Moscow now is uh, much more critical of any U.S. and NATO involvement in Ukraine, uh, regardless of NATO membership. Uh, I think they're they're taking more uh, actions to to demonstrate their displeasure with that involvement. And so I, I certainly think it's meant to send a signal or it's meant to, to express that displeasure to Western governments, but I, I don't think it portends something uh, worse than that. I don't think it portends uh, actual open aggression. And, and the other thing that makes me think that is that when Russia has moved militarily, they have done so stealthily. They have done so in a way that you where you don't expect it. Uh, so when they intervened and, and seized Crimea, they didn't make a big display of it beforehand to call attention to it. They just did it. When they intervened in Syria, they didn't make a lot of noise about it. They just did it. And so I think in this case, the fact that we've been talking about it now for for several weeks in the press suggests that they wanted everyone to see it. Uh, yeah. or they, they wanted everyone to get this impression that they were unhappy uh, with what Western governments were doing, uh, but they're not going to go beyond that. Uh, it's it's unclear what, to what extent the, the Russians are involved in goading the Belarusians into stoking this uh, migrant situation on the border with Poland. I think it's probably true that it wouldn't be happening if Moscow were firmly opposed to it. But while Belarus and Russia are in a political union, Belarus is still calling its own shots in many respects. It's not always doing what the Russians want. Uh, and of course, the the Russian and Belarusian leadership don't like each other very much. They don't trust each other, and so this is it's this is not simply a case of of you know Putin playing the puppet master as it's often portrayed uh, in our. Uh, media outlets. Um, And so I, I think that that will probably be resolved separately. And and,
0: I think so, too. And and
1: will be. uh, And I don't think I've seen some people suggest that this is being ginned up at the same time to distract from Ukraine. And I I think that's probably wrong. I think it just happens. It's just coincidental. They're, They're not. I don't think it's being coordinated.
0: Yeah. And I think what I was suggesting by my question about, are we looking at sort of like some, uh, the, the possibility of war breaking out? And it, I wasn't suggesting that the Russians would start a war. I was suggesting that perhaps the conditions on the ground there are creating a, a tinderbox of sorts, that, that maybe a spark could set off, even if it comes from the Ukraine side. You know, uh, and you have if you have a hundred thousand troops on one side, and you have Ukrainians, and, and we know that there's been kinetic action going on all, the whole time, but that the tensions could reach such a fever pitch that just one incident could send some, something much bigger off. And that same goes for what's going on on the border with Poland right now. Um, I I find it absolutely deplorable that uh, the uh, Belarusian government would be weaponizing migrants in such a way I mean, we know now that they were literally uh, working with uh, uh, the Iraqi uh, con- their consulate in Iraq and, and basically promising people uh, these visas and then and then shoving them off to the border once they got there. And they, you know, the EU had to come in and ask the Iraqis to stop the air flights going uh, to Belarus, and I believe Bahrain has done the same. Um, but this is just such a cynical and dangerous action on the part of the government um, as retribution for um, for sanctions uh, because they're mad at, at, at Poland and they're mad at the EU. Um, yeah, this is this is just the wrong way to, to go about it. And um, so we see that there are tensions uh, building up there. Um, There's talk about, and and there there are a few journalists on the ground there because Poland has not let many journalists uh, uh, to see what's going on. But I read this morning that there had been skirmishes, uh, tear gas has been used against the migrants. Migrants are getting sick. Some are dying in the forests there. Uh, This is just disgusting.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's appalling conduct on on the part of uh, the Belarusian government. and, and I think they, they learned or they, they saw that Turkey was able to have a lot of success in terms of blackmailing Europe uh, by controlling the flows of refugees. And they, they saw that that was an effective way to, to put the screws on European governments because, of course, those, many of those governments don't want any more refugees or migrants coming into their countries. Um, and, and I can understand from their perspective why, that, why they would want to impose those controls. But it's, uh, but that's clearly a point of leverage that countries farther east realize that they have, and that, and if their governments are cynical enough, uh, as, as Lukashenko's is, uh, they're, they're going to end up using that leverage uh, to to push back. Um, it, I think it does it does show sort of the the, the dead end of the sanctions on Belarus, in that. They, they slapped all of these sanctions on them to punish Lukashenko for stealing the election and staying in power uh, and, and for the repression that followed. Uh, but there, there's no, in a sense, there's no clear idea of how you're going to get Belarus to, to change course and and simply imposing economic sanctions uh, without end isn't going to get you there.
0: Right, now they're uh, slapping more sanctions
1: on them. Right. And it's yeah, and and we and we know uh, from sanctions on Russia, sanctions on other countries that that's ultimately a dead end. And it's actually uh, it's it's counterintuitive, but it's a boon for authoritarian governments because the the poorer and more isolated a country is, the easier it is to dominate. Right. And it's it's when countries are engaged and have trade and have exchange of people moving in and out, that's when the the grip of authoritarian states is weakened. And so. Uh, to, to penalize authoritarian leaders by penalizing their people is always the wrong way to go.
0: Yeah and on the on the issue of Ukraine I wanted to point out that there was an interesting interview on Tucker Carlson I believe it was last week or the week before in which he interviewed a Republican Congressman Mike Turner about uh, Ukraine and and Turner is part of some uh, coterie of, of lawmakers I don't know if it's an actual caucus who have been pushing for lethal aid to Ukraine. Uh, and uh, basically he went right out of the gate making fun of the Obama administration uh, for sending blankets and coats to uh, Ukraine and 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 not the, the guns and, and missiles that they should have been sending to them. Uh, during that revolutionary period, and we've talked about that on the show, how well that went. Um, you know, uh, the Obama's uh, support uh, for democracy promotion there, but the, for I mean, for his for for his case, I mean, uh, Obama did not send lethal aid uh, to Ukraine. The Trump administration, I believe, did. They did. It did. I don't know where that all stands now, but here comes this congressman saying that it is our responsibility uh, to help uh, Ukraine fight the Russians and we need to start sending them guns and missiles and and whatever. Uh, And for his part, Tucker Carlson pushed back on that and said, Why? You know, why is it in our national security interest to get involved in this fight? What I took away from this, though, is that there is there is still an active effort on Capitol Hill to get us involved in this uh, much, much, much deeper than just, you know, helping negotiate mints, too. I mean, this is right. they want us to choose sides and they and they are right. want to sort of like refight the Cold War. I mean, this is like Rocky Balboa versus <laughs> the, the Russian stallion or whatever his name was in the I mean, that they were talking, this this congressman was talking in those terms. And, you know, thank you, Tucker Carlson, whatever you think of him. But I mean, he really pushed back in a way that I think conservatives can identify after 20 years of war. What do we need to be doing
1: there? And I, yeah, and I and I saw the, the clip you're talking about from the, the interview and uh, Turner's argument. I mean, there, there were a couple of things that struck me about Turner's argument. One is how heavily ideological it was. He kept framing everything in terms of we have to stand with the democracy against the authoritarian menace and all of this, uh, which which really ri- rings even a, more hollow today than it did, say, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, that 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 kind of rhetoric sounds absurd today. Uh, not not only because it puts us in very dangerous position vis-a-vis Russia, but also because uh, that's the the kind of ideological language that got us into uh, our our unnecessary wars of the last 20 years. Um, And and this would be another one if people like Turner get their way. Uh, The other thing that struck me is how uh, dishonest the case for supporting Ukraine was, because he framed it as fulfilling our obligations to them. He talked about the Budapest Memorandum of 1994 as a treaty. He called it a treaty, which is exactly what it isn't. We have no treaty obligations to Ukraine. That's what the whole debate over bringing them into NATO is about. Uh, should we have treaty obligations to them or not? And you know, you have hawks like Turner coming out saying we already have these obligations that that require us to lend them assistance and to help them defend themselves, when that's absolutely not true. And so it's it's always telling to me when hawks have to pitch things like that that are that are clearly false
2: yeah, in order you. to
1: build a case, because it's. It shows how weak the the argument from our own interests really is.
0: Well, today we'd like to welcome Peter van Buren to the show. Peter is a retired United States Foreign Service officer who served on two provincial reconstruction teams for the U.S. government in Iraq, after which he wrote the book, We Meant Well, How I Helped Lose the Battle for the Hearts and Minds of the Iraqi People in 2012. After the release of the book, the Department of State began legal proceedings against Peter falsely claiming that the book revealed classified material. Through the efforts of the ACLU though, Van Buren instead retired from the State Department with his First Amendment rights intact and proceeded to write several more books, one of which is Ghosts of Tom Joad, A Story of the 99%, and Hooper's War, a novel of World War II Japan. Peter is a regular contributor to the American Conservative magazine and has appeared on the BBC World Service, NPR, Current TV, HuffPo, HuffPo Live. Tucker Carlson, intercepted, and a bunch of other media outlets. Welcome to the show, Peter.
2: It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me today.
0: oh, it's it's great having you on the show. I know that Dan and I interviewed you in a past life and a past podcast and uh, really enjoyed it. And just obviously, you have so many insights to bring to bear. And you know this week, as we've talked about in the intro segment, Uh, The New York Times had uh, published a major investigation this Sunday about a 2019 U.S. airstrike in Syria that resulted in dozens of women and children being incinerated. And, you know, you had written a piece this week for for Responsible Statecraft about this idea that America has always conducted its wars in the most humane way possible. We've endeavored uh, to always try to quote unquote, prevent civilian harm, Um, but it never really has worked out that way though. As Americans, we sort of live under this illusion uh, that we are the righteous ones and that things like this are more or less an an aberration Uh, rather than the norm. And I was wondering if we could start off our conversation today, if you'd like to talk a little bit about what you meant by that, and in general, how you view uh, these exposés that come out every so often and get everyone very upset about what the government is doing in their name, but there doesn't seem to be any lessons learned from them.
2: You know, I think the, the overarching idea here is that Hiroshima was not the exception. It, it set the rule for American style of making war. We act as a, as a nation, as a people, very surprised when uh, civilians are are killed or, or some atrocity occurs, and we treat it as a few rogue elements. We try to isolate uh, these things down to an individual if possible. Um, but in fact, it is part of our way uh, of making war, and it demands an answer to the question of where the line between combat and killing is. In the preparation of the article for Responsible Statecraft, I was shocked to find that there are nine hundred American Special Forces operators on the ground in Syria today. Uh, I consider myself fairly well informed about uh, what goes on in, in the world I, I and it's part of my job to stay informed but honestly I was not aware that the United States is still in active combat in Syria now the New York Times article refers back to uh, an event uh, two years ago a, a bombing that uh, quote went amiss unquote um, but in fact that war is still going on and it and leaves open the question of what combat are we engaged in who are we actually fighting or are we simply there killing people at, at this point uh, and i think the, the difference has to do with who's shooting back and why is everyone shooting at each other in a combat situation there's some type of, of goal Uh, Oftentimes, it's to get to a particular line, capture a city, change a regime, all those types of things. And obviously, there's lots of room to argue if any of that's good or bad. But what we're engaged in, increasingly, it appears, around the world is simply killing people. In Syria, the airstrike in question, which the US military, in response to the New York Times investigation claimed, was fully justified, killed 80 women uh, and children. And the justification came is that among them were supposedly some fighters. Um, I guess they were ISIS fighters. It's very unclear who's fighting whom anymore and how anyone knows these things. People gave up wearing uniforms and jerseys a long time ago. But the idea was that it was perfectly acceptable under the rules that the United States wrote for itself to kill 80 women and children in order to, uh knock off a a few fighters and we have seen that type of justification historically going back to as far into as world war ii the incineration of the city of hiroshima and then soon after that nagasaki was necessary in order to end the war and and we were told it would prevent greater tragedy uh, difficult to to weigh these things out But the idea was we destroyed two civilian cities of no military value uh, in search of some larger goal. We we certainly did that throughout World War II. In Vietnam, the policy uh, of search and destroy uh, was summarized in a brilliant book by a guy named Nick Turse called Kill Anything That Moves, which basically narrowed American strategy in the field down to shooting at anything that was in, in sight and hoping that that somehow would eventually add up to a strategy that would lead to victory. It is, simply ended up with a, a body count. When I was in Iraq, I um, Towards the end of the war, we would often drive through areas that had been decimated by American uh, firepower, uh, villages where where buildings would be destroyed. And you're left on your own to assume for your own mental sanity, if nothing else, that everyone in that building was a, a bad guy. Um, it's an apartment house with, with 20 units It's sitting in a residential neighborhood. Uh, the building next to them certainly has children's toys in, in, the, uh, in front of it. But that building that was destroyed uh, by an American smart bomb uh, was only insurgents and the destruction was justified. And what we saw in, in this New York Times report was an attempt to hide from the American people what our actual on the ground strategy is, which is to kill people. Um not to fight not to not to engage in combat, not to seek territory, not to fight towards political goals, but simply to destroy people in hopes that we will eventually arrive at uh, some type of strategy and perhaps even uh, an end game. Uh, you could make jokes about it and talk about shoot first, ask questions later, kill them all, let God sort them out, but you can see that these this policy of killing not combat is actually infused throughout the way we even talk about war um, we just had veterans day uh, and you saw a lot of vets with these types of uh, garish t-shirts you know the iron maiden character with with some kind of statement about uh, you know we'll shoot first and and uh, celebrate later or i'd rather uh, be uh, judged by 12 and carried by six Um, And these types of things are embedded in our thinking about war. And every once in a while, when something pops up that reminds us of this, that forces us to to give it at least a a glancing thought, um, it's very uncomfortable. And what we do is we look to places like The New York Times to... Repackage it for us, and it becomes a uh, an individual act. It becomes an isolated incident, and we're meant to be shocked. In fact, more by the cover up which took place in this Af- in this uh, Syrian stri- airstrike, as well as every incident. All along the way, going back to Milai and everything else, we're supposed to be shocked by the cover-up that the government doesn't want us to know, um, and not so shocked really by the event itself. The numbers get blurry. This uh, New York Times tells us this airstrike on women and children was somehow the third worst. Um, it's a garish game to keep score like this, um, but people uh, obviously do. And, and the theory of it, I guess, is is that if it was uh, eighty women and children, it's not as bad as the other one, which involved 112 women and children. Um, You could even say things have gotten better. But we want it to be a, a narrative. We want it to be like a Netflix show. You know, we can hear the, the the Morgan Friedman's voice in in the background saying, "You know, these brave reporters risked everything to tell it all and expose them, the American cover up." And the Afghan or the Afghans or the Syrians or the Iraqis or just just fill in the blank um, are really tangential to what the the good story is. Um, the good guys won because uh, we've exposed the. The cover up.
0: I mean, we have been obviously you bring up Milai, uh, Nick Terse's book, which is chock full of of, of examples of of um, illegal, I would say, killing uh, in our name, and yet it still goes on. And I'm wondering, is it the lack of accountability? And when I mean accountability, I don't mean accountability by the court of public opinion. I mean people getting canned, fired. Um, yep stars taken away.
2: We're going to jail, maybe.
0: Uh, going to jail, pensions removed. Um, it seems as though there, like you said, there is a lot of outrage when we read about these accounts. And then you have Secretary of Defense Austin demanding an investigation. We all know, likely, there's not going to be any uh, punishment for what happened. Uh, if, the, if the military is still maintaining that these uh, strikes were justified. I hardly believe anybody is going to lose their command or, or their jobs over this. Is, is this why we routinely see this kind of behavior in war? And I mean behavior in that on one hand, we are told that there are guidelines and bumpers and rules of engagement in place to prevent civilian harm. And then we hear that a completely different set of rules are, are being followed on the ground by commanders, and yet there, there's no accountability. Uh, is, is it because there's just you know um, never any um, punishment for, for, for yeah. these things?
2: I think the answer is in there, but I'm gonna tangle it up a little differently because I think the reason why there's no accountability is because it's policy. It's meant to happen this way. And it would be wrong under that rubric to punish the people who are doing what they're told. Now, and I I
0: don't, I mean, I don't mean to interrupt, but does that mean that they're lying to the American people? Because to us, they say that there are rules of engagement to prevent things like the Syrian airstrikes from happening. Yeah.
2: And and it's, it's all a matter of, of it's a, it's a magic trick. It it involves a, a setup and then some misdirection. The idea was, that in the Syrian airstrike, for example, the particular justification is that the rules of engagement, uh, which are basically the military rights for themselves, it's it's their, their uh, bumpers and, and borders on what they will and will not uh, do. Their rules of engagement say that in the event of imminent danger, that the forces on the ground uh, make the final call. And that opens a very, very wide door to Anything from sadism to mistakes, to misjudgments, to, to tactical errors, to just the ro- pointing at the wrong digits on, on a GPS screen. Um, now, I don't want to go down the road of, of baby killers here. I, I don't want to fall into the the, the trap uh, that occurred during the Vietnam War where people, individual soldiers were uh many times unjustly accused of individual acts of violence. I think that, in fact, is what the military wants us to believe, that these are rogue elements, mistakes made, uh, the passive voice that we're supposed to avoid in writing uh, is alive and well in in these situations, because mistakes are made. And at worst, when there's enough pressure to punish someone, an individual is is singled out. Uh, You pick one Navy SEAL who obviously had uh, I'm talking about the the, the the case where the the guy had actually been torturing prisoners in Afghanistan. You know, he obviously w- broke and broke every rule, broke every every rational, every human thing, and he gets singled out as kind of the the poster boy for all bad things. And uh, that that rogue element uh, eliminated. We're back to uh, all the good stuff. Um, you know, you have to take a look, for example, at what was going on here in, the, in this particular Syrian airstrike. Let's take the best possible view and say that the people had identified correctly several fighters um, that under whatever the rules were, were, were worth killing. The United States dropped 2,500 pounds of explosives, three different uh, bombs from two different airplanes, on a handful of, of Ordinance would blow a hole halfway through the center of the earth. There would be literally nothing left of the individuals targeted. There'd be a little pink mist that floated through the air, and that would be about it. Back up the rewind carpet bombing from B-52s over vast areas were used to try to kill handfuls of people in, in the job where white phosphorus and high explosives, they called it shake and bake, were used against individual sniper targets. I mean, you're talking about a form of warfare here that, that descends past the idea of, of, of some type of honorable uh, exchange, uh, all that Private Ryan stuff, and, and just is, is killing. Um, at some point, we have to ask ourselves if that is our policy Why is it our policy? And as responsible statecraft practitioners, what the point of such a policy is. Uh, The people that we're we're freeing, saving, regime changing, whatever, see those apartment houses uh, as well as we do. And they know even better than we do whether every apartment was filled with insurgents or whether or not that, that Orwellian term that's almost too gross for Orwell to have conceived collateral damage. Is what comes into play.
1: Certainly, thank you for coming on the show, Peter. Thank you, Dan. Uh, we appreciate it. Um, and well, I, I I take your points very well, uh, and it, it really is the it's the the pattern of conduct over many years uh, that we that we see on display here. The, these are maybe some of the most egregious examples, but they're not atypical, right? And so we we right. don't hear about a lot of them. Uh, often because they're not reported or because they, they are covered up. Uh, but but they're happening all the time. I mean, I think back to that uh, attack on the Doctors Without Borders hospital in Afghanistan at Kunduz sure. that killed dozens of people in an hour long attack on a location that the military knew was a hospital and knew was run by Doctors Without Borders. And there was an investigation, there was uh, a follow up, and absolutely nobody paid for that. Nobody was held responsible for that. Uh, as far as I know, nobody was even uh, reprimanded, uh, and and we saw the same thing with the Kabul drone strike uh, at the tail end of the war in Afghanistan. Yes, where uh, they went through the investigation and they said, "Well, the procedure was followed, and so everything is basically fine," even though at every point they made fatal errors that ended up killing ten people, and so it's it's this this pattern of conduct that we see uh, uh, that. The, is in all of our wars. And, and indeed, the, the bombing campaign against ISIS uh, was typified by indiscriminate bombing. Uh, and, and we see the difference in the counts of civilian casualties from groups like Air Wars that have tabulated something like you know, four or 5,000 civilians uh, versus what Central Command says happened, which is a couple dozen, right? Yeah. And so they, they, they simply don't count the civilian casualties, they, they pretend they're not there. Uh, and then obviously when they, they do acknowledge them internally, then they, they suppress it. Um, so I, the, the question is, after all that buildup, uh, can anything be done to hold those responsible for these attacks uh, accountable?
2: Uh,
1: does it have to come from the top? Uh, and, and so do we have to, to choose leaders that are actually prepared to enforce that kind of accountability?
2: It's difficult to be to be optimistic given the, the 70 some year history of, of this policy. The response from the military would very likely be a, a combination of things. Um, at the simplest level, they would uh, chastise you for putting American lives in danger. Um, if it's you in that foxhole, Dan, don't you want every weapon in the arsenal protecting you? Um, And that's true. If you are in that foxhole, that's exactly how you do feel. The problem is, is that these policies are not made by the guys in the foxhole. I can't, I don't blame that guy. And that's why I said earlier, I don't want to go down the road of of talking about baby killers and things here. That's not who we're talking about. We're we're, we're talking at decisions made a hundred levels above that guy in in the foxhole. Um, The second thing the military would say is that the tactic uh, has proven to be uh, effective. And the answer to that is it is effective at killing people, but the point of these conflicts, these wars, is not simply killing people. It has They have some strategic aim, however murky that, that may be. I, I, honestly, if, if we polled 10,000 people, I don't think one of them could explain why there are still 900 soldiers in, in Syria. Uh, even, even a bad answer, I, I would accept. Um, The the thing is, is that the, the military's job is to interpret with force the political goals. And so I think if we are going to look at any hope at all, it has to be outside of the military. It's very, very difficult to say to a guy who's being shot at, now I want you to stop and give some thought to this before you pull that that trigger. It's too late at that point. We've put that person or that unit or even that field commander, you know, even a colonel who's moving dots on a map around, we've put that person in a position that's absolutely untenable. It's absolutely ridiculous to impose on that individual the full responsibility for avoiding these terrible things, uh, these atrocities. Um, Though that responsibility exists on the individual level, it's clearly not enough. The answer, if there is an answer, has to be that the people who make the decisions to go to war, the politicians, are the ones who have to be held responsible. They are the ones that are far enough away from the dust and the blood to make decisions that are independent of, of instant Uh, morality. They are the ones who do not have the ability to hide behind the the technology and hide behind all the macho stuff and phrasings and things. They're the ones who have to stand up. And I would uh, offer a kidney donation to, to a reporter who today stands up in the White House briefing room and says, President Biden, can you explain in a sentence or two why the United States is still fighting in Syria, please? Um, I'd love to hear uh, an answer to that, and I know, sadly, that that, that I won't. So, uh, without being too pessimistic, I, I suspect that the accountability is up at the top, and those people are even more protected than the people lower down the chain.
1: Uh, well, I'm I'm afraid that's probably right. And i mean, speaking of Syria and Biden. Uh, we know just a few. Uh, I guess it was a, it was a month or two ago now. Uh, when he was talking about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, he made some sort of claim that we don't have troops on the ground in Syria, and and he was basically allowed to get away with that, and, and he said it a, a couple times, I think, where uh, he, he pretended that we could conduct our counterterrorism operations without troops on the ground when every anyone paying attention, I, I think, knew that they were there. Um, and they're without authorization, right? So this is one of these examples where Congress has simply allowed the president to move troops around, put them in whichever country he wants, uh, without any real oversight, without any control. Um, and I think one of the reasons why so few people do know that we're still in Syria is that almost nobody in Congress talks about it, almost n- nobody in news coverage talks about it, uh, unless the, that base comes under attack as it did a few weeks ago. And then people are are shocked and surprised that this drift has been allowed to happen. Um, Do do you think there's any realistic chance of Congress reining in that policy, uh, whether in Syria or in any of the other illegal wars we have going on?
2: Um, None at all. I think that the members of Congress are extremely comfortable not being responsible for these things. That's one of the reasons why they basically have allowed... For presidents to do whatever they wanted militarily around the world, including launching major uh, invasions, land invasions of countries without ever a declaration of war and just the the paper-thin pasties of the uh, authorization of military force going back 20 years now. um, They don't want to know. They don't want to be responsible. Um, and it's much, much easier if they can be as surprised as we are to find out that this is all still going on. Um, hearings will be held. Uh, desks will be pounded. Accountability will be demanded. Um, and then tomorrow night, depending on wh- which party is in power, it's either going to be Maddow or or or, or Hannity, who's, who's demanding uh, an answer to these things. But in the end, the game is always the same. President gets away with this um, and there is no need to be accountable because no one wants to be accountable. I don't know the number offhand, but I think it's well over 100 countries in the world are visited, we'll use, we'll use that neutral term, by American special forces each year, Um a lot of those things are just simply rubber uh, magic wanded as ways calling them training operations we have no idea what's being done around the world uh, in america's name um, i know from personal experience how how this works there were, my job in, in iraq was to uh, supposedly uh, build schools and dig wells and that type of thing and more than once we would roll into a, a village in the morning to find out that there'd been a u.s special forces raid the night before and the person that we're trying to talk to about building a well is still angry because you know some of his his uh, relatives had been had their doors kicked in and, and were taken away in the middle of the night and the idea that we were both both, both those special forces and me and my well diggers were all on the same team following the same larger strategy was you know, hilariously wrong. Um, and I can't for the life of me tell you whether it was better that they kicked in those doors or that I dug those wells. I, I don't know which of those was the right answer, but I can tell you doing both of them at the same time was not the right answer. And that's what you see going on around the world, America acting at cross-purposes to its own best interests and certainly its own stated goals.
1: And we'll have to leave it there on that, uh, unfortunately, a bit downbeat note. uh, But uh, thank you so much for coming on, Peter. Uh, We really appreciate it. Uh, Peter Van Buren, our guest today.
2: It's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.